Hello and welcome to the Take 15 podcast. I'm Lauren Foster and this is the show where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most thoughtful and accomplished people. On today's episode, addiction. It's a big, hairy topic, one that I can't possibly do justice to in the short time we have. And for some, this may be a tough conversation to listen to. We all know someone, maybe even in our own family, who has suffered from alcohol or drug addiction and mental health issues. My guest today knows this all too well. Arden O'Connor founded her firm to help families and individuals struggling with an array of behavioral health issues and has first-hand experience of what families go through. With many people feeling isolated and anxious due to the coronavirus, it's important that we all pay attention to those around us, as we know stress can lead to substance abuse and also trigger relapses. Arden is a delight, and even though the topic is a serious one, she brings a charm and optimism to the discussion that is quite uplifting. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Arden O'Connor, welcome. Thank you so much for having me today. So you're joining us from Boston. So before we get started, um, how are you holding up and how are things in your home city? I'm doing well. I think it took me a little bit of time to adjust in early March. I, I don't think I estimated how long of a process this was going to be, which I've come to realize is I, I believe we're going to be, especially given that I'm in Boston, which is one of the hotspot cities, we're going to be under a very slow rollout back to whatever the new normal is going to be. Um, I think things are okay in our city, and it's very interesting given that I run a mental health company. We're seeing widely variant responses. Some people have decided to really take the recommendation seriously. They're wearing masks all the time, and they seem to have settled into whatever their new schedule looks like, and others are really struggling with the isolation and, and frustrated by the limitations. So um, personally, I feel really lucky to be engaged in a job I really love and have family around. We're starting to see each other a little bit more in person, which is nice, um, and obviously taking precautions. But uh, but so overall, I don't have many complaints, but I know that's not the same for many of those in our community. Yes, indeed. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're safe and well. So I'd love to start with your, your personal story. You just mentioned that you run a healthcare company, um, or mental health company, sorry. Um, you founded a company to help families with addiction and behavioral health issues. Um, and this work is also very personal for you. So can you just tell us a bit about uh, why you founded the company? Sure. So I am one of three siblings. I had a younger brother named Chris who struggled with drug and al- drugs and alcohol for years. It started, I would say, the way most children do, probably in around 12 or 13, drinking and marijuana use that progressed to cocaine and then eventually opiates, and he dropped out of college his freshman, uh, sophomore year of college, um, and then went through a series, probably about 15 different residential programs. And I kept saying to my parents along the way that I'd never seen a medical issue that creates so much emotional devastation, financial devastation, complete chaos in our family, and we're a very close family, um, and really is, you know, one that there isn't a lot of guidance on. You know, if you go to a psychiatrist, I remember at one point during his treatment in California, one psychiatrist said he absolutely was sure that my brother had a very significant uh, form of bipolar disorder, and another psychiatrist said he would stake his career on the fact that my brother wasn't bipolar, he just had a severe addiction issue. So if you think about a lay person like my parents, who are not medical professionals, trying to navigate those different pieces 
advice and then deal with somebody who is resistant to the help he's being offered, it just makes the situation very complicated for families. And I wanted to figure out if there was a better way to help people navigate the system and then return to their communities with more intensive services to get better long-term outcomes. Okay. So, you know, I was doing some reading ahead of our conversation and I came away with the sense that addiction is, in many senses, a quite a daunting topic. And I wonder if we could start with some of the basics, like the basic question of sort of what is addiction and what do we misunderstand about addiction? Sure. I mean, at a fundamental level, I think the most important thing to understand about addiction is it's a chronic disease. It's a medical condition. It's been defined that way for a long time. Uh, it is not a moral failing. It is not a, a demonstration of a lack of personal responsibility or lack of discipline. I think many of our family members that we serve and, and those in my personal network get upset when a loved one has overused alcohol or is engaging in dangerous behavior. Sometimes it's fear, but sometimes there is just some plain judgment because people view it as a choice. And if you love somebody with an addiction issue, the way I've, I love my brother and many others in my family, um, you know that they're not choosing to engage in these behaviors. It's a way that your brain is wired, you respond, your dopamine receptors respond differently to addictive substances than they do for somebody like me. Um, and they even have these terms, you know, I, I'm a social drinker, they call me a normie in the field, which means that I can enjoy a moderate amount of alcohol use um, on a very social basis, but I am not psychologically or physically addicted to it. People who have addiction issues can't engage in one without having it increase the likelihood that they're going to have issues down the road or that they're going to go from one to many more. And many of us wonder if we have a family member who perhaps uh, has an alcohol issue or any other kind of addiction, um, is there a genetic component to addiction? There is. There's a very strong genetic component. Um, I always joke, I run the O'Connor Professional Group. I am Irish Catholic by descent. It's no big surprise, I'm sure. And the running joke at our firm is we could keep in business just serving the O'Connor Family and Friends Group because there's such a high genetic correlation. Um, we also know that there's a very high genetic correlation between fathers and sons. So fathers are four to six times more likely to pass an addiction issue to their sons. Um, and that very much was the case in, in my immediate family. So can you talk about two uh, elements a little bit, uh, stigma and denial? Sure. So I think for many people, stigma is an issue. I will say the, the benefit, if there is one, of the opioid crisis is that there's been such, you know, prior to COVID particularly, there's been such media attention paid on to opiates that the devastation is wrecking across our country. So we're seeing a little bit less stigma um, we're seeing people being more open. You know, celebrities are now coming out and admitting that they're in recovery and telling their stories, which frankly is changing the American mindset, probably more so than almost anything else, that addiction is in fact a disease. And we're seeing the topic of opiate addiction or alcoholism covered, I think, in more intense and personal ways in mainstream media publications. I will say within the wealthier demographic, there are I think there remains still an issue around stigma because many people worry about privacy. They're concerned that somehow it makes their child different than others. You know, we've had families say, well, they need to get it together, but they should eventually figure out how to be able to drink at their sister's wedding. There's a little bit, I think, addiction still, there's still a bit of a stigma in certain um, demographic groups. 
On the denial side, I would say that's an issue that a lot of people have, both the folks who have the addiction issue and family members. And, and some of these trends apply to mental health issues as well. Uh, but families often live in denial because they can be afraid of changing the status quo. You can have a wife who's been um, working, you know, been together with a husband for years and years, drinks with him, has a social life that frankly surrounds around drinking, country clubs, parties, travels, where alcohol is very much integrated into their experience. And the idea of confronting someone about their behaviors and potentially having to talk about separating or dividing assets or getting that person to do something they're not willing to do could be really daunting. So a lot of folks will say things like, well, my husband is still a full-time lawyer. He can't possibly have, he can't be an alcoholic. He's functioning in the world. Um, we also see a dramatic amount of denial with folks who have, even if they've experienced huge consequences, you know, they may say, well, I'm drinking the same or I'm, all my friends use drugs. It's not that big of a deal. So those, that element is probably one of the hardest things to deal with um, particularly if the person who has the issue is in denial and the family members. It's very hard to make change. But. Right. So speaking of al alcohol, it seems like anecdotally these Zoom happy hours are happening sort of all the time and that many people are using alcohol as something of a, a coping mechanism. Uh, there was a headline, I think it was this week, that was, could all those quarantinis lead to drinking problems? And so I'm wondering, where does it cross over between sort of a social drink and a coping mechanism versus something more worrisome? Sure. It's a great point. I mean, I think one of the statistics I saw in one week in March, the online liquor sale business was up 300%. So that gives you some perspective as to where people are um, are using or getting their um, their ways, they're finding ways to sort of manage their own anxiety or other uh, challenges during this time. You know, I think what's important to know are general guidelines for what normal drinking is. So for women, it's five to seven drinks a week. For men, it's roughly eight to 10. Um, and so if you think, and, and when you think about drinks, I always point this out, it's 12 ounces of beer, five ounces of wine, and an ounce and a half of hard liquor. Um, and I always point that out because if you go to a very fancy hotel or to a restaurant, if they serve you a martini or quarantini, you know, even if you make one at home, you're often doing a double or at least a one and a half pour without even realizing it to fill the glass. So does it mean that you have to like take a measuring spoon out? No, but it's good to know what consider what drinking in normal limits is. I think the other piece to think about, you know, similar to being on a vacation, many people drink outside of those normal limits on a vacation. I think for some people, this will be a time that they're under tremendous stress. And I always say, for me, it's about balancing. It doesn't mean that I can't have a glass of wine, but on days that I'm stressed, do I also take a walk? Do I have take a bath? Do I find another way to relieve that anxiety so my only go-to method is not alcohol repeatedly? When it starts to become more problematic is when it's interfering with functioning. So even with people managing a lot in the home, if they're suddenly not showing up for work deadlines, if they can't be a partner to somebody in a really holistic way, if your spouse or somebody at work is coming to you and saying, I'm concerned you have an issue, um, if you're feeling the physical effects of alcohol the next day or you're feeling cravings like it's five o'clock and you're just 
clenched waiting to get to that drink. Those are all signs that things have progressed and you'd want to seek professional help. Okay. Um, so many of us have seen uh, the sort of staggering numbers that are associated with COVID-19. I think the headline this week was that we supposed surpassed this grim headline of 100,000 deaths. Can you just put in context for us uh, the, the numbers uh, surrounding addiction in the U.S. every year? So I looked at this recently. So yes, we're beyond the 100,000 mark. We lose roughly, at least in the past, the past couple of years, we've lost 70,000 people to drug overdoses. And I think what's telling is this obviously happened in a much more truncated period of time. It's a lot less, especially with the number of people that are asymptomatic. Um, people, I think, are very fearful of COVID because they could catch it and not know it, and it could be it's very contagious. I also think, honestly, that it speaks back to the issue that you brought up about stigma. Many people are finding ways to say, well, I don't have a drug. Like, that's a population I can't relate to because that's not me. I don't engage in those behaviors. But when we look on it, look at it from a relative scale perspective, we're losing the same amount of people every year in a pretty, you know, it's not as much talked about, just be given the folks that, we're, that, that die from drug overdoses. It's a pretty shocking number to, to lose 70,000 people a year. Yeah. It so, is, and, and yeah, I think it's one of the things that I'm always grateful when you see people talk out, talk about their family stories because it helps people to feel more comfortable to share their own experiences. Yeah, absolutely. So many people are feeling very isolated um, during the pandemic, and I read somewhere that addiction is considered a disease of isolation. I'm not sure whether that's something you agree with, but it seems that people are worried that uh, once the pandemic passes, we're going to get this sort of this wave of mental health and uh, substance use issues. Is that something that you're concerned about? We're really predicting that we will see that for a whole number of reasons. One, you know, many of the residential programs are still operating, but the way in which they're operating to protect people is different. So the community experience you get from being in an inpatient setting is a bit different. That said, at least you're safe and there's structure. When you leave an inpatient setting and you're going back into the community, or for those folks who are not going to go into a residential setting, the landscape is totally different. AA meetings are not happening in person yet. Um, for most states at least, and I think those will be slow to start back up again because you have such a, a population that you can't really control in terms of knowing who's going to be there and what protocols they're going to follow. So much of that is online, which I think is fine for somebody who's five years in recovery, but if you are a month in recovery and you can't have that human connection of a sponsor and sitting next to others that have a similar experience, that's very difficult. I would also say outpatient therapy, um, if you really wanted to engage on an intensive basis, two to three hours a day in group settings, those programs have all moved to telehealth, which is a great option to have. But again, it's not quite the same level of structure that provi that's provided in an inpatient experience. So I think it's a very hard time for folks in early stage recovery. And I think given that anxiety rates are roughly double what we saw prior to COVID, we're going to see a lot of people who are going to be anxious for a long time, partially because I think the medical piece is one thing, but we're also going to see some economic fallout that's going to contribute to anxiety rates and suicide rates. So your firm obviously works with families that are struggling with these issues, and some of our listeners are financial advisors that deal with families. So how can advisors or really anyone recognize potential issues with the clients or loved ones or their own family members? What are some of the warning signs to be on the lookout for? Yeah. I would say major changes in behavior um, and appearance is one sort of category. So it could be that someone's eyes are dilated. It could be that their hygiene isn't what, what it once was. 
for eating disorders, which we also treat, you can see people getting much thinner. Um, you may see people with more erratic moods. Uh, that can be trickier to see, especially if you're an advisor and you're doing meetings over Skype, because many of our clients and, and many people out there in the world are smart enough to pull it together for the one hour, and then they kind of go back into something that's more problematic. I think more obvious signs can be things like overspending. Sometimes that's just due to a lack of financial literacy, but other times it's a signal that somebody has an addiction issue um, or, frankly, a mental health issue. We've had clients who are bipolar and they're spending from 12 a.m. to 7 a.m. in the morning. You know, they're either in a manic state and they're buying stuff online on an overnight uh, during the overnight period of time. I would also say, you know, major warning signs are things like winding up in the hospital. Um, due to a drug overdose or some kind of psychiatric breakdown. Um, if you see somebody who's expelled from school, somebody gets a DUI. I always say for advisors, you know, if you hear somebody say, well, this is the first time, it's very unlikely that somebody gets picked up driving um, drunk for the first time. So some of these crises that families experience can be warning signs for family members, but they also may be opportunities for advisors to say something very benign, like it sounds like this was really difficult. You know, would you like me to see if I can find a resource to help you? Mm-hmm. So that's a segue. I mean, if an advisor sees some troubling signs, should he or she intervene? And some people are worried about sort of breaching certain etiquette. What should they do? So it really depends on the advisor's personality and their firm culture. Certain firms, they have very intimate relationships with clients. And I've seen advisors in multifamily offices who, in my opinion, almost, you know, I, I worry for them sometimes. Like they really will push their clients to get resources, which I think ultimately is helpful. But it does, there is a question about the relationship there. Other times, there's more of a transactional relationship. So sometimes advisors are invited into the conversation. Someone may offhandedly mention um, in a trust and estate planning process, well, my son has these issues, so I want to write some language into the document. And I think a very simple answer from an advisor's perspective can be, you know, I understand that must be very difficult. Do you feel like you have the resources you need, or may I be helpful to introduce you to somebody? I think another piece of advice that I have been giving more and more recently to advisors, attorneys, financial planners, in the list of intake questions with your first meeting a client, I think it's a good time to say, you know, our job is to preserve your assets over the long term. Should we be aware of any special needs in your family. Examples could be addiction, mental health, autism, because it generalizes it and it doesn't make people feel stigmatized. So the, the, quick, answer to, sorry, the quick answer to your question is it depends on the case. Um, but most of the time, I think advisors, if they ask it in the right way and they're not pushing their own opinions, I think they'll be surprised about how um, positively families respond to somebody who's in a very different position being concerned about their well-being. So if an advisor does want to step in, are there certain communication strategies that you have found are more likely to succeed with someone in distress or a family that's in distress? Absolutely. So asking permission is a big one. I'd like to raise a sensitive subject. Are you open to that? If you have a window, I think suggesting something benign, do you feel like you have enough resources or would you be open to talking to someone to see if they could better help you? Normalizing the experience, you know, normalizing problems. These are issues that everybody faces or a big majority of our client faces, which is actually statistically true. You know, if you think about mental health as a category, addiction, and then things like autism, 
it covers a pretty broad spectrum and a lot of people's families are affected. I think speaking in first person, I notice, and I always encourage this to families, rather than saying something judgmental, like you have an alcohol problem, you know, with families, we even see more pejorative language, like you're a drunk. I always say a more uh, appropriate type of uh, communication strategy would be to say, look, I was with you. And I noticed you had five drinks within an hour and didn't have anything to eat. I'm really concerned. And can we talk about it? Um, and so using first-person language. The last thing I would say for advisors is really having resources at the ready um, to turn to if the client says, yes, I want help. Because where I do think that things kind of go over a line that can make life more problematic for advisors if, if it is if advisors who are not clinical professionals are trying to give their own advice and their own thoughts as to how to handle a situation. Because if that doesn't turn out well, you have now jeopardized another existing relationship you have with that client. Right. Well, let's spend a few minutes on the question of resources. Uh, if an advisor wants to look for resources or uh, anyone that's looking for resources, uh, what would you recommend? Where should they turn for those kinds of resources? So that it depends on where, what type of resource they're looking for. We have a pretty extensive list on our company website that includes mostly governmental agencies. So SAMHSA um, is a major governmental agency that has a treatment locator that can help families put in their zip code. It's a little bit challenging to navigate because it just gives you a download of all the different options that exist out there, but it will give you some information. There are equivalent organizations for mental health, big one that most people know of is NAMI, National Association of Mental Illness, and all these links are on our website. There's one for eating disorders. So I would say, depending on what they're looking for, those can be good resources. We welcome any calls to our uh, intake line. Certainly, we get a fair amount of calls that are not relevant, you know, of situations that are not matches for our firm. But we do our best to connect people with other options that exist out there. I'd say the last thing that advisors consider is if they're in a specific area, you know, do they want to make a relationship with a general therapist or a psychiatrist who they bring in in these matters? And again, you know, our firm is always happy to, to field calls, but it, it's not a bad solution to have. You know, somebody, if something comes up that's concerning, that the firm is vetted a particular resource that they can suggest to families. So if a listener does want to go to your website, could you just share the, the URL in case they want to visit? Absolutely. So it's www.oconnor, O-C-O-N-N-O-R, P is in professional, G is in group.com. Great. So my last question, and listeners who are so regular subscribers will know that I like to end with something called the ray of sunshine question. And this has been a new thing since COVID-19. I feel like there's so much negative news out there that I try and end with something positive. So I guess it's two questions and you can kind of see which one you want to answer or both. Uh, what has been the most positive lesson for you that you've learned uh, from the uh, pandemic? And then what do you hope uh, we will all sort of learn or take away from this experience? I think they're great questions, and they're for me, they're intertwined. So I, like many, I'm sure, of the listeners, um, and, and obviously this is this uh, podcast was in replacement of an activity where I was supposed to go out and do a speech at a conference. So I was looking at a pretty packed mid-March through beginning of June in terms of conferences, in-person meetings, travel. And when that all got wiped away, I always joke that I stomped around my room metaphorically like a child. It was just very cranky. I was going to miss my college reunion, concerts, this, that, the other. And finally, I sort of said, okay, you know, who do you want to be? Do you want to look back on this time two years from now? Do 
you want to be embarrassed about the way you behaved and how reactive you were to challenges financially or to the missed opportunities of social engagement? Or do you want to be proud that even if you had to make tough decisions, you did so with grace, you were thoughtful, and you did your best to protect those in your company and those around you? And obviously, I, I tried to choose the latter, and I feel like one of the benefits for me has been there's been a bit of a slowdown process. Without having to be on planes and jumping from meeting to meeting, I don't have commuting time. I'm able to be more casual in my home and spend more time thinking a little bit more strategically and maybe rethinking, you know, how do we do our marketing efforts? How do we engage our team members? And how can we think beyond just me and my needs, our company, our company's needs, and, and into the world a bit? So if there's one thing I hope that we for me personally, my hope is that I don't lose a little bit more zen that has come into my life and really a sense of the importance of prioritizing and, and maybe not returning to a, a life where you're up at six and you're going until eight and then you wonder why you're so tired at the end of the day. Well, on that note, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. I wish you lots more zen and please stay safe out there. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.